Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 55, The Grid, recorded here on a beautiful weekend, May 28th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. I want to give a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible albums on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Black Licorice. You're listening to it now, and our outro is Sally Ride. That's a good one, too. Corrections, I am not a world traveler, and so I was surprised to find that Kokomo, uh, the famous Beach Boys destination and song, is uh, is spelled with K's and not with C's. Uh, They say traveling broadens the mind, but I imagine it's generally just realizing how things aren't quite spelled the way you expect it. That's what you really learn when you travel. Um, Also, in the last episode, I think I misheard my terrific guest, Dr. Tom Holtz, and I thought he said tyrannophonious when when it's actually teratophonious that he was talking about. That's my mistake, and sorry for any confusion. Now who sounds like a phony, right? And uh, and it turns out I've not not watched the horror classic Alien before. I was watching Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3, and I'm pretty familiar with two of those films, and apparently I had not seen the first one. Uh, I may have to, to watch it again because I don't quite understand why Jonesy was in it, why they'd have brought Jonesy along, and frankly, had they just jiggled a bag of treats, they probably could have spared themselves quite a bit of drama looking for him. Because, you know, you shake a bag of treats and cats just come running, and it's easy as that. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have stopped the aliens, but <laughs> we would have got the cat back in the bag. Uh, dinosaur news! Uh, with Velociraptors being the starring villain in the, the final section of this novel, I have some Velociraptor news. This first article is called Feather Quill Knobs in the Dinosaur Velociraptor from the journal Science in September 2007. The paper declares, quote, some non-Avian theropod dinosaurs were at least partially covered in feathers or filamentous protofeathers. And they, quote, present direct evidence of feathers in Velociraptor mongoliensis based on the presence of quill knobs on the posterior forearm. They argue that in many living birds, quote, Raised knobs along the caudal margin of the ulna reveal where the quills of the secondary feathers are anchored to the bone by follicular ligaments. And while an absence of these anchor points does not necessarily indicate a lack of feathers, quote, their presence is a direct indicator of feathers of modern aspect. And that means feathers composed of arachis and veins formed by barbs. These anchor points are observed on a specimen named IgM100-981, which was collected from the Campanian-aged Jakota formation in Mongolia belonging to a 1.5 meter long velociraptor weighing about 15 kilograms or like what 30 35 pounds something like that the specimen preserved six low papillae on the middle third of the caudal margin of the ulna which correspond to the quill knobs in living birds and given their spacing the authors believe there was space for eight additional secondary feathers suggesting a total of 14 secondaries present in velociraptor which compares well with the 12 or more secondaries in archaeopteryx of which the feathers are well preserved and this compares uh, to approximately 18 secondaries believed to be in the uh, another dromaeosaurid microraptor and also compares well against Rayonavis, which had approximately 10 of these feathers. The paper concludes by hypothesizing that, quote, quill knobs in Velociraptor could reflect retention of feathers from smaller, possibly volant ancestors, but such feathers may have had other functions. Although thermoregulatory effects of secondaries on the ulna would be negligible, such feathers could have been used for display, in shielding nests for thermal control, or for creating negative drift during incline running. 
Quote, whether this feature represents retention of an ancestral function or the co-option for other purposes, the presence of quilled feathers on the posterior of the arms in a medium-sized derived clearly non-volant dromaeosaur can now be established. So if you're ever wondering why people argue so strongly for feathered velociraptors, this paper from 2007 speaks to direct evidence of veined feathers on a velociraptor's forearms. So there you go. Uh, the second news item is for a new iguanodontian dinosaur described in July 2022 from the Kirkwood Formation of South Africa. This new creature is Yukurathi, and it's described from the remains of at least 27 individuals found in a nesting environment that contain juveniles and hatchlings. The paper says that this is the second ornithopod dinosaur known from the Cretaceous of Southern Africa, and the remains are believed to be, be a result from quote, seasonal mortality from a nesting site or nesting grounds, it may be linked to an environmental shift when the season, seasonal climate became dry. The name Iyuku is derived from the Joshin word for hatchling, and Raithai honors the South African paleontologist Mike Raith, making this Mike Raith's hatchlings. Of all the remains, a specimen AM6067 was declared the holotype, composed of an incomplete semi-articulated skeleton, including a partial skull, vertebrae, scapulae, pelvic girdle, both legs, and ribs. And while it's challenging to run a juvenile or infant animal through the phylogenetic analysis machine, they did anyhow, and the results came back consistently that this was a member of the Iguanodontia, a semi-bipedal or quadrupedal animal having a skull with a long snout, a broad horny beak, and no numerous grinding teeth. Interestingly, although the remains of Iyuku were not found in association with nests or eggshells, it's possible that the concentration of remains represent a seasonal attrition at or near a nesting site, with the bone scatter explained by trampling prior to, or dinoturbation shortly thereafter, the remains were buried. So that's neat. Alright, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Uh, joining me today is uh, my special guest, Roselle Lim, who is a Filipino-Chinese writer who came to Canada from the Philippines as a young teen and learned English by watching wrestling shows on television. She has a degree in humanities and history from York University. Are you still in the Toronto area? You're not? I was in the Toronto okay. area. I'm about two hours away from right. Toronto, so I'm away from all of the bad air quality going on right now. You are away from that? We have it. Um, it's, I'm starting to feel it. Like, I can feel it in my voice. I can, um, I've got a little cough. It's just subtle, but it's definitely... Where, where are you? I'm in Durham region, just north of, uh, northeast of Toronto. <laughs> so that's not, I'm near Brantford. Brantford? So, okay. Yeah, so I'm farther west. west. Yeah. I can understand why you get it more, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, it's really bad. Yeah, it's incredible. It's been really something to see. I think, um... I think the visual of it is very uh, doom-inducing. I, I, hopefully it's not as... Hopefully we all get through this and it's not as bad <laughs> as, uh, as we fear that it might be. But uh, it looks menacing, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. I think it's just because we're due for a little bit of rain. I think so. Like once we get a little bit, like yeah. it'll like get rid of some of the dry wood that's... Yes. Yeah, we haven't had rain weeks. It's, it, it's been a long time. But we'll get there for sure. So uh, people don't know this. Roselle and I, we met in the land of Acme Acres, which is a whole wide world apart. For that semester, our home sweet home stood alone, a cartoon work of art. And there we attended Acme University to earn our two degrees, where the teaching staff's been getting laughs since 1933. The classes were tiny and toony. And all a little loony, they made for a tiny toon adventure. And I'm glad we could join in the fun. Have you framed your diploma from Acme University? No, but I still keep in touch with Elmira. <laughs> Do you? I understand that you were a big fan of Tiny Toons once upon a time. Uh, yes, Elmira. I think Elmira was like 
my favorite one because I react the same way to cats. So <laughs> completely understandable. Do cats Cut react them, the same way them. to you? No. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> we have a cat and she uh, usually Rick rolls us during production of the show. Um, she's always making a noise. I, she just got fed, so she might be sleeping now, which is good. <laughs> but cats are always the worst for recording. Well, this is good. So one of the things about uh, Tiny Toons is um, I, I think it's got a connection to Jurassic Park in that uh, Steven Spielberg's name was very prominently displayed in the opening credits, which is fun. And I don't know if that was so parents when they watched the opening titles, they'd see his name and think, oh, that's the guy that did Jaws and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And uh, I think he got a kid drunk in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So I guess I can let my kids watch Tiny Toons. That's fine. <laughs> I think they have him, too, doing cameos there in, like, Animaniacs. I remember seeing, like, a cartoon version of Steve, Steven mm -hmm. in both. That guy loves the spotlight, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him. So, uh, it begs the question. So, we were just chatting a little bit about this, but uh, what's your familiarity with the property of Jurassic Park? Is it, you know, have you read the novel? Uh, you said you watched about quite a few of the films. I think I read the novel a long time ago, mm -hmm. but it's really the films that I that I love. Watch the first three. Yes, I understand people say after the first film, the quality drops off, but I'm sorry. I will watch anything Sam Neill is in mm -hmm. or anything Jeff Goldblum is in. It's like a given for me just to, just to see it. They, yes, are so quotable. A big part of a film Ed, is if you have a quotable lines that you can come out and saying ah that was memorable when they said this that goes a long way and uh sam neill and, and jeff goldblum certainly carry the the, the heavy load don't they <laughs> it's hard to quote anybody else in those films sometimes well i like i like laura dern as being like mm -hmm. the feminine like the lead like no nonsense like you know, badass kind of situation. Like, I think that she's she's great for that as well. Mm-hmm. She might be one of the few people who got very close to a Velociraptor and did just fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is pretty pretty telling. Do you have, like, memories of watching the movie for the first time or anything like that uh, back, uh, back once upon a time? I don't, because I think... When did it, when did it come out? The book was 1990, the movie was 1993, and then it would have been on home cassette in 1994. Oh, yeah, 1993 would be me, like, getting my feet wet in Canada, mm. having moved here. And it's just, honestly, fear is one of those things where it's a universal kind of, like, emotion, right? Like, you don't really need to. You just see a big dinosaur, yeah. you know, the tension and all of that. And they, they've always captured, like, the tension, it's just it's a different kind of tone in the second the second one mm. with Jeff. But there's more humor in that. But then they get back to their roots again with like the terror in the I wouldn't say reboot, but like sort of reboot with Chris Chris Pratt and mm. Bryce Dallas Howard. Like they have that like that tension again, and it's just really amped up. Mm -hmm. It's I almost feel like I can see a pattern where you have tension and then you have a bit of humor like they go through but I prefer it personally even though I appreciate the humor I like more of the tension like the the horror just aspect let it build it. up eh <laughs> no resolution okay yeah that be, becomes more of a thriller when you do that <laughs> yeah the third one not as much humor 
So as an author, you have to let me know what, uh, you know, be honest. How often do you want to put dinosaurs in your books when you're writing them? If I'm writing horror, well, my books are usually foodie. So in a foodie context, so I guess dinosaurs would fit either we are getting eaten or we are (laughs) eating them. It's one or the other. And I always thought that if, you know, you were to taste a dinosaur, it would not taste like chicken. Mm Hmm. I wonder. I don't wonder. I've never wondered. <laughs> I think it would taste like crocodile, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Would that be good? Have you had crocodile? I don't think so. Okay, so crocodile is like a fishy, like a fishy, like chicken. Okay. But like it has like that, that gamey, fishy, like essence to it. Okay. But the texture is like like chicken okay. that it like you can shred it you know how of a chicken breast you can like shred it into strings it's kind of similar to that mm-hmm. sounds like a great excuse for lots of garlic butter <laughs> that'd be all right yep in terms of uh in, in books of yours that do not have dinosaurs in them um i have a description of your latest novel it contains no dinosaurs but it does feature sophie go who is a newly minted professional matchmaker who has returned to Toronto, her hometown, after spending three years in Shanghai. Her job is made difficult when she is revealed as a fraud. She never actually graduated from matchmaking school. In a competitive market like Toronto, no one wants to take a chance on an inexperienced and unaccredited matchmaker, and soon, Sophie becomes an outcast. In dire search of clients, Sophie stumbles upon a secret club within her condo complex, the Old Ducks, who are seven septuagenarian Chinese bachelors who never found love. And she convinces them to hire her, and her matchmaking skills are put to the test as she learns the depths of loneliness, heartbreak, and love by attempting to make the hardest matches of her life. So uh, you have to tell me. So Sophie returns telling everyone that she is an accredited bona fide matchmaker, yeah. but she did she drop out or flunk out or what happened to her? Um, she was basically kicked out. Okay. Um, the story itself is more of a re- it's like a loose retelling of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. Which is why you have the seven bachelors and it's got themes of like found family. It has certain certain sites in Toronto that I put in there that are real and some that are not real that I've made up. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. So are like, uh, do each of the, the gentlemen have their personalities boiled down to a common trait or is one bashful? It's, well, actually, like she doesn't she doesn't name them. Because right. in this case, it's like writing a novel with code names for people gets very, very tricky, especially when they're talking to each other and they can't call each other the code names that you've given them. Mm-hmm. So in this case, it's like there you have a Mr. Porcupine, the grumpy one, Mr. Moon, Mr. Durian. So I love the idea that this is um, borrowing from the fairy tale of Snow White and the seven dwarves. I think that there's there's something really fascinating about making an illusion or making a twist on a on a classic tale or something like that. I've heard also that you mentioned that there is there's uh, elements of there being like an abusive stepmother which kind of borrows from the from the Cinderella yeah. stories. Are these comments from readers who've discovered these illusions in your text that make you comment on them or or did you intentionally sort of employ these these connections to fairy tales uh, while you're preparing the story? It was a subconscious thing, I swear. Yeah. Like I laid out, it's it's kind of like this situation where you're laying out a meal, you're cooking out a bunch of stuff, and then all of a sudden you step back and you're like, oh my God, I prepared a Southern barbecue themed <laughs> meal. But it's like, but there's there's a little bit of like, you know, awareness that you're doing the right, it just, yeah, one of the readers are like, you did that. And I'm like, 
Yeah, I think I did. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, right. There's a stepmother slash mother. Check. Seven dwarves. Check. One is grumpy. Check. (laughs) All of this. You've got a prince. Check. Like, all of these things are like... It's honestly, it's a subconscious thing that when somebody pointed it out, I'm like, I guess that was what I was trying to write. I, I know that these these themes and these stories uh, always are operating in our subconscious, that they influence, I guess, a perspective of maybe what we expect to happen going forward. Like we expect these stories to unfold as they go. And, uh, and maybe we try to live into these stories or, or at least learn from them in some in some uh cautionary tales but it's it's fascinating to see how they still operate they're still part of our expectations as we look at things and certainly when you when you're doing this sort of thing you can evoke a lot of narrative structure and empathy and sympathy for a character by employing archetypal character uh, characters and borrowing from these classical narratives when when you're looking at i guess maybe a high perspective or a high concept for your novels or story days do you know what roles do you suppose fairy tales or classic stories play in choosing a direction or a plot or a, or a topic that you wanted to explore again it's like i'm gonna go back to food yeah. metaphors here yeah. it's like using a form or a type of recipe that you already know works mm. but you're altering it in a way to make it your own like me looking at let's say a meatloaf and i'm looking at that and i'm going nah it needs to be more asian right so i'm going to make instead of making it out of meat i'm going to make it out of sticky rice but then add in all of the filling and like transform it to make it like your own, but still have all of those elements that a lot of people recognize. Oh man. I love sticky rice. I would never stop until it was gone. (laughs) 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 I like that recipe already. Well, that's fascinating. I know that retelling classic tales and modernizing them or, or adapting them for a new audience is uh, it's always going on. We see it in TV all the time. I think, MacGyver just finished a, a new like eight year run. <laughs> Hawaii Five O just had another big run a second time around. Magnum is back on TV for some reason, and of course Romeo and Juliet's been retold more ways than you can cook an egg. And Tiny Toons was brought back to <laughs> to uh, to bring Looney Tunes characters to a new audience in the nineties. Uh, just something about revamping familiar characters that you remember, but also yeah taking a twist on it saying how could this be interesting or what what new things can be told by looking at it from a different lens and I, and uh yeah an asian spin on meatloaf would be one way to look at it do you do you come to new conclusions do they did the outcomes without spoiling the end of the book do you find that uh, the stories go in in a surprising direction after after making that one twist that that moves them forward for me because my books tend to have the theme of i don't like people getting depressed when they read it like mm-hmm. at least these three sets of books they're always they there's always like a hopeful uplifting note at the end of it mm-hmm. so i know i have to end up that way because i just don't like reading books that are like depressing mm-hmm. i i just don't because i suffer from anxiety and depression i don't need anything <laughs> like just give me all of the like reality trash and anything that'll like feed my my mood but i'd, I'd rather not consume that kind of like media mm. personally i can only imagine as yeah as a creator that you might want to when you when you leave your creations out in the world you might want to show them the truth you know put the mirror up to society but you want to leave them with a message of hope i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> So I guess when you're scheming up your characters and obstacles and the progressions that they must go through for, for your plotting, you mentioned that 
subconsciously you sort of turn to the fairy tales and nursery rhymes and things like that but you also must re rely on like your lived experiences for inspiration as well how how do um how do you find a good balance between what you know rings true and maybe what becomes more fantastical as you're weaving these things together take all of the people you like and all the people you don't like alter <laughs> enough details to make sure they can identify themselves in the book and voila you have a novel <laughs> that's a fascinating way to put it just disguise them enough <laughs> it is you need to disguise them enough especially if it's if you're bringing a very unflattering yet truthful take on mm. what they're like because they could be like hey am i that skeezy guy you wrote that's named john in your book and you're like why would you think that way <laughs> that would be great to like help them, you know, achieve some sort of self-awareness. And then mm. you deny, deny, deny. <laughs> I th and I think every time at the end of the book, it says this is a work of fiction. Any coincidence or any, any similarities, pure coincidence. Yeah. Uh, and that's for everybody's uh, mental health, I think. <laughs> well, I think uh, when, when I'm looking at Jurassic Park, I know that Michael Crichton on occasion employs some, some common tropes to evoke a commonly understood atmosphere. And in doing this, he just borrows familiar atmosphere from an established entity, sparing himself the, you know, the work of creating that atmosphere on his own, which is like what literary devices are for. So that, that's good. And it, there's a couple fun examples. He, uh, there's one scene where Ed Regis, who is the uh, marketing communications guy at Jurassic Park, is being attacked by a tyrannosaur and Crichton evokes like this haunting imagery uh, that kind of makes it like a ghost story. And uh, there's this another scene where the kids are tiptoeing past a sleeping tyrannosaurus and he's uh, evoking Jack and the Beanstalk imagery as they sneak past the giant. And then there's another neat one where um, the raptors are coming through the ceiling and they're about to capture our heroes and he's like evoking the Sword of Damocles mythology, which is really interesting stuff. But, you know, he doesn't expand on them he's not commenting on them he's just borrowing these single moments to try and i guess make a point or establish a mood but there's one thing that he does that comes up over and over in the book and that's borrowing from alice's adventures in wonderland i wonder when you think back to the film can you think of the one great big glaring alice in wonderland reference that keeps popping up i'm trying to think of it but i, I think a lot of it in the beginning was all of that wonder wonder of seeing something new mm -hmm. and and yeah like alice alice deals with that like alice does deal with that but the other thing too is that when you think about the way that she views the world she she thinks the world is upside down that it shouldn't be right mm -hmm. and what i see in that point of view that does it well is honestly malcolm yes Always... He views it with the same kind of like, because he's a, I can't remember if he's a chaos theorist or yes. something like that. Yeah. Like he views it the same way with that kind of cynical, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to pay for this. This isn't right. And she kind of walks around Wonderland that way of this isn't right. See, like... Everything in disorder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the one part that is like expressly really, really, uh, prominent in the film is uh, when Dennis Nedry, who is the computer tech, he, he's, uh, he creates a command that destroys Jurassic Park's operating system, and he names it the White Rabbit Object. Oh. And it's mentioned a few times in the text. The park's systems engineer, John Arnold, specifically sees this, and he wonders if it's some kind of private joke. Uh, so Arnold commenting on it, and us seeing it a few different ways, lets us know that this is A, 
acknowledging that it is a literary reference right away. And, uh, and I think it is an admission that Crichton is expecting Wonderland references to be visible in his, in his book when he writes it. And so, yeah, I sought you out because you have publicly commented on Alice's Adventures in Wonderland are, are forthcoming to, to speak on the subject, which I really like. So that's, that's awesome. And um, why is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland a special book for you? Because it's just, it's so completely removed and I mean, the older that I got, the more I realized that a lot of the political commentary as well that's underlying everything, mm -hmm. why the Mad Hatter was like mad because of the types of like things that they use to process beaver fur. And if you put that on your head for too long, that's what happens. All those chemicals, like all of these little things that like I didn't, it's, it's a work that I like because it's one, it's subversive. Mm -hmm. Disguised as a children's tale. And two, it's, you could still keep finding new meanings or new nuances or interpretations the more that you read it. Mm -hmm. Like it's got that uh, versatility and flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great text. You can go back and revisit and it, and it shows you something new um, and surprise you. I think Jurassic Park does that as well. I think a lot of people turn back to it and go, wow, I saw a new thing in this reading it over again. And I know doing a close reading like I am, yeah, the rereads make it all worthwhile. Yeah, so The White Rabbit, it's... Uh, Obviously, a reference to to Alice's Adventures of Wonderland. Generally, the White Rabbit is used to compel characters toward an inciting incident, and uh, and it's connected to that portal fantasy where you know you follow the rabbit and you're taken to a new world. And of course, that takes us to to Wonderland when you follow the rabbit. Have you found maybe there's a loaded question? Have you found any parallels between Alice's experience with with coming to a strange, unfamiliar, complicated place like Wonderland, and perhaps uh, your own travels in your life? Uh, you mentioned you came to to Canada as uh, as a teenager, do her experiences really early teens? Really yeah, early? when I got here, the first thing that they put me in, they were deciding whether I should go into ESL. Mm -hmm. And yeah, apparently enough Macho Man Randy Savage like <laughs> uh, lessons. Like I, I was able to avoid ESL, but they also put me in French right then and there. Oh yeah, it's like bad enough. I had to learn English, and then you have to learn French. Yeah. So there is a lot of like the just how everything is different culturally mm -hmm. did you identify with her in some respects that like this all seems so bizarre <laughs> where these people are zany or how they do things it it's just different like it's more i'm tr like when i was younger i was a hell of a lot less judgmental <laughs> not the way that alice is alice is very judgmental mm -hmm. at a young age but when i was younger i was less judgmental the older you get the crustier and saltier you get so <laughs> that's a different kind of thing but yeah like it's it's absolutely just like it, it is a different kind of world and now that you now that you're making me think mm. this is a little bit off a little bit uh, off topic but it's it relates to jurassic park to me, Jurassic Park is a bit of a, you know how it was a warning for, like, don't interfere with something. Like, at the time, I believe it's like a good, it was a good tale against genetic splicing, like mm -hmm. in uh, in your crops or whatever it is that you're doing. Because, you know, Dolly the sheep and all of this stuff ended up happening close to or whatever that people are thinking about. And this is like genetics was a big thing. And, I mean, if you take that original film and you apply it to modern day what is dinosaurs but organic ai <laughs> okay yes yeah i think uh, i think you're right there is a lot of warnings about what biotech 
could do in yeah. terms of uh, damaging society. What Crichton didn't see was perhaps social media on the on the uh, horizon, because I think social media might do more harm than bioengineering did, and uh, and it certainly got into more households than maybe biotech yeah. did as well. But you're right; he was uh, he was certainly forewarning that there was the new age is going to come with a new technology, and that new technology in his book is biotech, but. Uh, yeah. That new tech is going to come and it's going to change the world and it's going to be Pandora's box is open and it's uh, when the harm starts coming out it's going to be bad. And I think we I think we see social media having a, a deleterious effect on on minds in some respects. Uh, yeah, this is why I quit Facebook. Like this is why I quit. Like certain I live I try to limit it mm -hmm. as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Um. But like the only thing calling me back, honestly, is like the promise of kittens, because it's one way for me <laughs> to get my cat pictures. Because the internet is full of cats. If the if you take all of the cats out of the internet, it would be the most depressing place in the whole damn world. It's the cats that's keeping the the balance of good. You're right. The, the content. The Pulitzer Prize should go to cats <laughs> for, <laughs> for for keeping us afloat. Cats go in places. Have you seen them where they just it's just videos of them zooming through the house? <laughs> Um, well, back to the portal fantasy. Crichton specifically uses this. I think that it's it's spelled out almost very clearly in in a, in a chapter called it's called Jurassic Park. So they first arrive at the, at the island. It's quote they moved into a green tunnel of overarching palms leading toward the main visitor building. Everywhere, extensive and elaborate planting emphasized the feeling that they were entering a new world, a prehistoric tropical world, and leaving the normal world behind. And that's on page eighty three. So we get uh, obviously this white rabbit styled. MacGuffin-esque plot device, which compels the narrative into this new world. If you remember in the book, and it it's so hard because it was so long ago and it was never really adapted into the films, but the white rabbit that uh, Crichton uses is a chicken-sized lizard that bites a little American girl down in Costa Rica. And then there's this mystery to identify the lizard, and it becomes the metaphorical white rabbit for Michael Crichton. And the, the mystery eventually compels Hammond and Gennaro to wrangle together a group of consultants to inspect the park and specifically see if this chicken-sized lizard has escaped from their park or not. The whole idea of using a white rabbit to draw them into this new world uh, through the portal is is uh, very clear. And I think Crichton intended us to see it that way. Yeah, oh, but... I was going to ask, what do you think about the size issue in that when Alice gets transported into Wonderland, mm -hmm. you have the issue of size. And what better way to show the issue of size than to put dinosaurs beside men? Yes. For humans. Dwarfed by the Tyrannosaur, dwarfed by the yes. Apatosaurus. But then you also have tiny little... Yes, and little ones as well. They're bigger and smaller yeah. than them. Yeah, there's certainly a connection there. I found in Alice in Wonderland that her difficulties fitting in were like physically manifested in she was literally too big and too small <laughs> she was a giant at one point and she was a, a miniature in another and she literally physically did not fit in to wonderland in, in in a lot of respects and she couldn't navigate she couldn't get through keyholes she couldn't get through doorways she couldn't reach stuff she literally couldn't navigate wonderland because she didn't fit in which is fascinating because it was also contextually uh, what her character was going through as well not just physically so I thought that was fascinating. At the end, when she finally grows back to her mature size, and like relative to the rest of the deck of cards, they just are a deck of cards to her anymore. And it, it, it kind of represents like this 
she's finally come to a sake of maturity. She's able to finally find her voice, finally declare what needs to be done for her to navigate through that world. And she's able to, you know, be impervious to to the the, the court, <laughs> you know, the, the queen of hearts. She's impervious to them. She's she's beyond their their meddling. And uh, and then she wakes up. That's the end of the story. It's so fascinating that she doesn't fit in. She can't find her way. And as she matures to a final place, she finds her voice. She reaches you know, adulthood or maturity or something like that. And I believe there's parallels to that in Jurassic Park as well, but it's uh, much more subtextual. <laughs> well, if you think about um, Sam Neill's character, mm -hmm. very much like what you said, unable to grasp any of the technology, we've seen him fumbling through it because this is this man is basically a Luddite through and through, mm -hmm. right? So he has problems with the technology, understands, like, sees, like, the horrifying implications of it the way that Malcolm does as well. But like you could see though that in the end he doesn't so much mature as he just doubles down on his ludditeness at the end, going, mm -hmm. "Yeah, I was right. All of this crap was crap. I'm I'm getting out of here. We're out." But <laughs> Alice kind of goes on that arc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she. Yeah, in terms of like a character story arc in the film, like Grant discovers that he can learn to love children <laughs> that's kind of he goes from i will never love children to i guess i could love children but yeah his 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 arc isn't expanded much beyond that he, he remains rooted in this uh this blue collar hey the real work is done with your hands not with computers i don't trust those at all although they needed computers to save the day <laughs> i mean but he doesn't get together with ellie until what the very last film of mm -hmm. like we're talking about modern day like it takes him that long i'm like it's all I can think of is Buddy. If a little like Victorian girl could figure her crap out in That's like right. one in one sitting, it took you a very long time to realize that yeah, you were dumb. You should have said yes when she mm -hmm. when she was there asking you for it. And uh, and I think in Jurassic Park three, it's 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 um uh, it's written kind of ham fistedly, but like his character arc in the third film was he needed to learn how to call for help, and yep. he didn't know how. And I think it's said a couple of times early, man, you got to really learn how to reach out or something like that. And then there's this moment where um, he notices that one of the velociraptors is calling for help. And then he goes, oh, my God, it's calling for help. <laughs> and then he gets his phone and he calls Ali and he calls for help. And then she sends what the Navy and the Coast Guard or something like that. This the army and the Navy. She is too good for him. <laughs> this, and like, it took like she was under his spell, like mm -hmm. some sort of like whatever spell that was in the beginning and he was too like honestly i'm gonna say it he was too stupid to realize <laughs> that this glorious woman like actually wants to have his children and yes. it just took him a long ass time decades to learn 30 years 28 years something like that yeah. yeah terrible terrible you're right he had a lot to learn and he didn't learn it and i think uh yeah he was still kind of stuck in the old ways when computers came along and he the, the world moved on without him what he didn't need was uh, the career, which he buried himself in. That wasn't what he needed. He needed the matchmaker to get him and Ellie back together. <laughs> but that's the thing. If you think about it, in the end, what is what is Dr. Grant but a dinosaur? A proverbial dinosaur. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Entirely correct. So Wonderland is filled with a lot of insane characters, and I think they're called mad, and, uh, and ridiculous procedures it's not that they don't have rules it's that all the rules don't make any sense <laughs> and uh and i just wonder what i guess what makes 
Wonderland an interesting place for you? And how do you make any sense of what's going on there? How, what, how do you view Wonderland? I am not a type A personality, <laughs> so I could just, you know, stand there and kind of go, oh, okay, I'll go with the flow. But I can understand somebody else would like a really like strong type A personality go in there and lose their mind in like the first minute and go, nope, I'm one out, 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 out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah crazy. It, when it's that crazy, it's unpredictable. Like you don't even know if you're safe. Any- and they're not. I mean, <laughs> but... <laughs> And there's so many like little tales that aren't especially famous, but like, was it the pig baby that she has to run away with before yeah. she meets a Cheshire cat? And like this kid is the pig is being like harmed by by people that are cooking. Is it? Or I can't yeah. they're making a pepper soup or something. Oh man, like it was a, a strange and scary place. That's for sure. It is, and I think like that's that's the thing that would honestly like get me to just go I'm out it would be the surreal quality of everything Mm -hmm. that's what would make me go nope if I like if I see like a baby morph into a piggy nope Mm -hmm. I'm out and I think uh it certainly does a send-up of of um taking a shot at like Victorian institutions it takes a shot at the monarchy you get the king and the queen uh it's certainly taking a poke at the legal system where there's the trial in the end uh and it you know, the, the common experience of having one's afternoon tea in England, I think, the Victorian era. They certainly go through that, which is not as formal and observant of the, the proper decorum as you would expect because it is mad. Um, <laughs> there is, it's absolute chaos. All of these systems of order, all of these kind of Victorian proper structures are, have, been, have been satirized almost. Like they're exaggerated in these terrible ways and there's no way to make any sense of them. Why do you think... Lewis Carroll made Wonderland so absurd or chaotic. Was was he trying to comment? Like it sounds like he wasn't trying to make a comment, but he obviously was. He was he was saying these are instit- British Victorian institutions, and they need to be seen for as absurd as they are. Do, do you feel this way? In this case, I think the reason this is just my theory. If you're gonna make something like that. It's the only way, the only way to do it is to channel it through a children's novel. Mm. Because no way in heck could you release an adult novel with all of these things and not be like police knocking on your door going, in treason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind yes. of situation, right? But like, it's it's kind of the vehicle for it. This is why like children's children's literature is such a perfect vehicle to put in subversive and mm-hmm. very like, you know, revolutionary ideas. Yes. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1984, or two sides of a different coin or something like that. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Yes, to, to disguise it in a children's tale, all these subversive yeah. topics. So when you're doing that, you're taking aim at, especially when you're doing satire, institutions of power. And so yeah. when we look at what is, what do you suppose Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is, is saying about the monarchy, about the judicial system in England in the Victorian era? how is power used do you do you see and um what comes of it what do you think of of power and its potency or impotency in in alice's adventures of wonderland what uh what shines through for you as as being the message being relayed the message being relayed to me is like one this is the only way that you can punch up mm-hmm. without oh. honestly like being called out on it yes and the second thing too is it's all about awareness Mm-hmm. That Alice's maturity in the end 
is the is the reawakening of her being aware of how the world works mm -hmm. and that is how she becomes slowly becomes an adult mm -hmm. i was looking at like the queen is a uh, psycho <laughs> the, the the rules of uh, croquet don't make any sense everybody's worried to do the right thing by her and she's threatening to to and i think the king is as well uh behead everyone yeah, it's so crazy. But then they, I don't know that they do actually behead anyone. I think, you know, she's all bark and, and little bite. But maybe just she hasn't had an opportunity to, to execute anyone yet. <laughs> maybe it's just her way of dismissing people from her presence. <laughs> to, to declare... I think for me, I think it actually, like, I hate to say this, but I think it happens off screen. Just because the people around her would not act with that much terror yes. and fear of her authority mm. if there was no repercussions. Yeah, that is that is unsettling. You're you're absolutely right. That place is dangerous. <laughs> it's scary. This whole idea of disguising a subversive text inside of a children's tale. This whole uh, what was it? Uh, Socrates. It was was uh, accused of damage poisoning the minds of youth. <laughs> when who's Carol might have been painted in the but same it's, brush it's i mean think about it how can like how can you think for yourself learning to think for yourself mm -hmm. is a like is basically the lesson that alice has that she's learned to think for herself and that's not like yes that is subversive only in one viewed in context by somebody who does who feels threatened by mm -hmm. people thinking for themselves wow a whole new lens to watch, read that book over again with that's incredible uh <laughs> So did you know, I think Michael Crichton put Lewis Carroll in the novel Jurassic Park? No, okay. I didn't. So Crichton has a villainous shyster named Dr. Lewis Dodson, who is clearly named in homage to Charles Ludwig Dodson, who we all know by his pen name, Lewis Carroll. So I would say an undeniable connectivity between Lewis Carroll and Charles Dodson, making Lewis Dodson, which is this uh, this bad guy that works for a competitive company. So... um is another another thing where you know he's obviously saying i like alice's adventures in wonderland i admire the story and i'm going to continue to put these bits and pieces i'm sure that there is more to be said about w this whole subversive text he Crichton is also building this thing he's trying to take down um i think what malcolm's talking about is like western ideologies and the scientific era and what does science actually teach you and uh and i think Crichton is doing a very similar thing where he's trying to say that, you know, we're building this world up and it, we need to take it down. Malcolm's very clear about this inside the text and, it, and maybe in the movies less so, but... I think it, it, it is. Like, if you think back in the movies, in that scene where they were going into, they stopped the ride, they got out to get into the lab and they were watching the Vel Velociraptors hatch. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one, everybody else had the look of wonder in their face. Oh, cute baby. And mm. he's like, do you not realize that you're holding a killer? In? Like, he knows. He's the only one who can see all of the implications or whatever, like, consequences are to everything. It's just, this is also this, this like, commentary of wielding power and not even caring what the consequences are, which is, again, like, you know, if you trail that back to Alice in Wonderland, that's what's going on in, with the queen. Mm-hmm rearranging her world the way that she wants it that's scary i it's so fascinating because i guess this idea that if you were to employ the the uh the concept of of going through the looking glass or going through the rabbit hole i guess there's no looking glass yet um 
that you know if you're to do a, a modern take on it if, if if in the traditional sense you put on like go through the hole and you put on these new lenses and the and you can see the victorian society in a in a new perspective i wonder what if you were to go into wonderland t t today what it what you would see and how you might as a creative writer you know what would it be saying about society it could be very interesting you know as an adaptation looking at victorian england to be looking at uh, a canadian or an american situation so you know instead of tea parties and monarchies and croquet you know you uh you visit a pub parliament and a hockey game or something like that it would just so be strange <laughs> I would be, honestly, if I'm looking at from a American and a Canadian point of view, it would be like what Robin, I think it was Robin Williams who was attributed to that quote about Canada being the uh, the apartment above America's meth lab <laughs> situation. But it would be the same thing where it's like you want to deny that the influences of one country doesn't influence you, but it does. Mm -hmm, to a certain mm -hmm. extent mm -hmm, and definitely. then like granted now we're kind of pushing some of that hot air back unfortunately in the form of wildfires that you can see that coming in but it's it's sort of like the the slow progression of what would happen if we didn't have our own unique culture mm -hmm. that would like try to that would try to like unravel some of the stuff that's being imported ideas wise because there is like because of social media, like you said, it's so easy to import a lot of ideas and cultural things into that we don't even want, but it's going in there. Mm -hmm. Or or just misunderstandings in terms of, um, for example, I had a friend that's uh, shared a post about how it was uh, against the bylaw to mow your grass and have the grass go onto the sidewalk. It was against the bylaw, so there was a fine for this, but uh, it had nothing to do with us in our township it was a bylaw for some place in vermont or something like that but you would believe that it was relative to us and then people might start getting you know controversial about hey get your grass off the sidewalk or i'll call the like you know what i mean and it's like well this well it is yeah. it's you're taking because people because social media gives you you get to look at everything yes so but it's it gets honestly exhausting for you to be able to check to make sure that everything is correct that you're seeing right like it's it takes work it takes more work to see that oh my goodness that kitty that i'm seeing it's real or <laughs> that kitty that i'm seeing somebody painted it and just kind of put it there it's like you you have to put in that extra bit of like mental mm -hmm. hard work to it, just figure out whatever the heck is that you're seeing yes it's almost like exactly a, what you're seeing like a kaleidoscope except for it's not one image that's spread into lots it's lots of images spread into one it's a reverse kaleidoscope and you don't know where all the pieces are coming from, but they all form your worldview. That's crazy. <laughs> it makes it easier to be honestly Alice and that she's looking at everything yeah. knowing that what she's looking at is a, a perverted, I would say a perverted or an alternate version of what the world is like. You can call it perverted. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's definitely one that's not safe. See, I wondered when I was going through it, like she's from a world where there's very rigid rules and institutions. She goes to a place where the rules and institutions are still rigid, but they're insane. And then she tries to bring an order to them, like in the court case at the end, she's trying to say, well, no, you're supposed to do it this way and this way. And she's kind of imparting some of the existing structures of what she had learned. And she's trying to put them into this place where they have different structures. 
but she doesn't like either of them. And I just, it becomes a point as she, as we were saying before, finally grows into her true self, returns to her regular size, matures. She's found a way to stand up for herself against both of them. And I think when we're talking about how crazy the world is with social media and, and having to do the work to make it yourself, that is almost the same story that Alice goes through, where she doesn't know what's going on. And it comes down to, you know, you got to make your own decisions and you got to make sense of it all. And it's your responsibility. And then she wakes up from her dream. But think about the story and how Alice is walking around. She's being told what not and not to do. Mm -hmm. But she's still able to walk around and not have basically the patriarchy telling her no. You stand that square, like be, she's not at all being, she's not at all treated as a woman or even a girl. She's treated as like an anonymous player in the situations that she's in, right? Like with their absurd rules, but not that one, I think that one vital thing where she's not being suffocated for what, for her station and her gender in this world is something that I think a lot of people overlook. I guess, yeah, she does have, she has agency, that's for sure. She is being asked yeah. to do things and stuff like that, but she does have agency, which um, I suppose would be significantly different from the agency she had in a Victorian era. <laughs> I mean, how much, how much, you don't really see the misogyny, though. That's true. That is true. Yeah. You see a lot of the classism, you see a lot of the other commentaries of it, but there isn't a lot of misogyny of you can't do this because you're a girl. Which is why I think it's it's telling that he set this in Wonderland where the real world rules don't apply. Mm -hmm. Well, the forward to my copy of Wonderland credits, uh, this tale is one of the first, quote, great imaginative books for children whose principal goal was to entertain rather than instruct. And Carol sort of pokes a stab at moral lessons in children's lit. And uh, I have a, one quote here. So it's right at the beginning here, but uh, Alice finds a, a, a bottle and it has the words drink me beautifully printed on its large letters. And then it's, uh, she goes through it and she says, well, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to drink this because it says I'll have a look first. She said, see whether it's marked poison or not. For she had read several nice little stories about children who had got burnt and eaten up by wild beasts and other unpleasant things, all because they would not remember the simple rules their friends had taught them. Such as that a red hot poker will burn you if it's uh, if you hold it for too long, and that if you cut your finger very deeply with a knife, it usually bleeds. And she had never forgotten that if you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. So right at the very beginning, he says, "I want to make a fanciful story," or he's we're told that he wanted to make a fanciful story. And right at the very beginning, she's saying, "Oh, I've learned all these lessons that are important and informing me <laughs> uh, on what to do." She's got these cautionary tales. So it's just interesting that he, he makes a, a reference to the things that he's stating that he's not going to be. <laughs> and then we do get this story that uh, really has a lot to say about uh, finding one's own voice. So it, makes, it begs the question, you know, do you think that he wrote the whole thing without a point just to be fun? Or do you think that there really was this subversive intention behind the tale? Why don't we circle back exactly to the first thing that I told you, that sometimes as a writer, you prepare a meal yes. with all of your views and everything in there, and it just happens to be a right fit, literarily, as devices into 
the novel that you're reading that it happens to be your worldviews but it fits in so well and makes the story great you nailed it i think you're absolutely right so this must have been something there was he must have been feeling it very strongly if it if it manifested in his in his whimsies as i was preparing for this interview and i was thinking so much more about how these things are related i think Crichton agreed that through this portal fantasy the wonderland provides like a playground for satirizing common culture and and the moral lesson in jurassic park is that one cannot aim to control nature rather one must be humble before nature and through the portal fantasy entering into wonderland jurassic park satirizes what happens when this important moral law is turned on its head and uh and so it's another how do all these pieces fit together i i have to think that Crichton was more than just subliminally uh, manifesting uh, Alice's Adventures of Wonderland in this text. I, I know that there's more to it. Um, Think about the scene of the tea party mm -hmm. in Wonderland. I can I can see a parallel scene with the boardroom. Uh, right. Um, he's trying to tell everybody. And he's like the only one. The only one that agrees with me is this stupid lawyer. <laughs> When I started thinking about uh, you know parallels, um, I figured that the the queen that wanted to behead everyone would be related to the king in in Jurassic Park, which is the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and uh, and then I thought, who would be Alice? And there's one character that so we have Lex, who is a little girl, and there are a whopping amount of similar characteristics between Lex, the, the little girl who's like seven, and John Hammond, who is 76. And they're both like short, they're both small, they both like do childish things, they have temper tantrums, they both eat ice cream. There's a lot of things that those two characters have in common. And I wonder if Hammond plays the role of Alice in some respects, but turned on its side. Like, he doesn't survive. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't learn the lessons he was supposed to learn in, in, in Wonderland or at Jurassic Park. But finally, I started thinking, well, who would be the Cheshire Cat? And you mentioned him earlier. But the one person you Malcolm. can see with the grin who's being provocative Malcolm. that's teasing everyone along the way, definitely Ian Malcolm. There, there's so many interesting details that are, are related. We have covered a lot of ground. I appreciate uh, you joining me. First of all, I understand that, that the book that you, you recently have put out and then the two before that as well, have all been approached for to be turned into developed into like a, either television yeah. or a streaming service which is which is um generally that that happens when you've got great characters and intriguing plots so if there's anything that would speak for uh, what kind of books you're writing uh, i would say that that would be quite the endorsement um what, what are the other books about where can people find them and uh what is the the latest on uh on their their ad adaptations uh, the other books are Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune and the second book, Vanessa Yu's Magical Paris Tea Shop. You can find them in any bookstore online, big Amazon, Indigo, your favorite indie independence. And as for the adaptation, I support the WGA strike. Yes. And everything is at a halt. They really just want to get their money from streaming and not have AI screw around with their jobs. Mm -hmm. I completely support that. What was the phone call like when they when you were approached about having having your stories develop develop for the screen? Tell me about what that would be like. Uh surreal. Yeah. Just absolutely surreal. And a lot of it is they're courting you. They're asking you to choose them 
to be the people to like execute this vision. So they give you their vision of how they want to like the inter their interpretation of what your books or what your mm -hmm. um, creative out out like book is, and they will tell you what it is. And if you agree that that's the vision that you want to go in, then you, then it's all set and. You don't say anything until they let you say stuff and <laughs> Fair enough. wait and you wait and you wait some more, basically. A lot of waiting. So you'll get an executive producer credit for this? Uh, yes. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. I've been in the process lucky enough that I get to talk to the writers that they're interviewing. Oh, wow. And what about um, things like casting and things like that? Do you get uh, any news on that? I... Or do you get any influence on that? I have no idea because right now it's get the writers first yes get your get that um pitch get the pilot made and then uh, the casting is like farther down the road yeah. but i do know that it's in my contract that if they want to fly my butt to la i have to fly in business class and they put me up in a nice place that isn't a roach motel that's in my contract that's what i remember <laughs> that's fascinating well that's exciting good for you congrats and Thank you. uh I'm excited for you. That's really cool. Really cool. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show, and uh, I hope you had a good time. I've been looking forward to doing this for so long, so I, I'm so glad you were here to do it with me. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to make Thanksgiving interesting for yes. this year, try stuffing your turkey with glutinous rice and Chinese sausage and a bunch of mushrooms. Oh, man. I'll put rice in anything. You got it. <laughs> But yeah, it's a different it's a different way of instead of dressing. Having your turkey. You know, my my folks love dressing though. And dressing's good. Uh, maybe two turkeys. We'll find a way. You can make the dressing outside of the turkey. It's true. I say it's true. this because I make stuffing outside of the turkey. Mm -hmm. I always do and I always have to make like a gluten-free one. Okay. For the celiacs in my family All and right. I've always made that outside of the turkey it's nice and I, it makes it nice and crispy because that way if you like your stuffing more crispy than soggy it's the perfect like mm. selling point mm -hmm. i like the sounds of that you got it i'll let you know how it turns out all right a great big thank you to Rizel for for joining me on the show thank you Rizel. um like i said i was looking forward to talking about alice's adventures in wonderland for a long time so thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it All right, this week's text is The Grid, spanning from pages 345 to 350. In a synopsis, Tim struggles to get the power restored in order to save their friends in the lodge, but three raptors leap up to the balcony and enter the second floor of the visitor center. Lex and Tim snag a keycard from a dead security officer and escape into another room. Characters. Lex Murphy, she's freaking out, keeping the temperature high while Timmy works on the computer. Uh, on page 345, and as they go to escape the raptors back into the control room, they discover they've been locked out. Turning the power back on has restored the locks. Tim Murphy. Tim's getting frustrated with the computer and with Lex, and he struggles to navigate through the unfamiliar system on page 345. He flips and worries and scans and learns as he flips through the system, trying to return power to the park on 347. When the raptors enter the visitor center, he's initially confused as to how the raptor has escaped the freezer, but then he realizes these are different raptors on page 349, and they snatch a security card from a dead guard and rush through the nearest door they can to escape the raptors. Dennis Nedry returns a little bit. Uh, in the info tab that Tim opens, Nedry is listed as the project supervisor for the Jurassic Park common user interface. 
which is in version 1.1b24. His company is listed as Integrated Computer Systems, Inc., located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And his chief programmer is Mike Backus on page 346. And Mike Backus is a gentleman listed as Nedry's chief programmer at the Integrated Computer Systems. That's all we really learn about him. Robert Muldoon, he chirps in over the radio to see if Tim can provide any hope of being spared from the Raptors climbing through the ceiling at uh, at them in the lodge. Uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm predicts as the Raptors gnaw through the second bar and the reinforced skylights that it may only be three or four minutes before the Raptors can enter the lodge. He calls Tim over the radio to no answer. There's a dead security guard. He's described as a slumped shape in the corridor who has a white security card on page 349. Perhaps this is the guy who lost his ear. Um, how that ear wound up in the control room, uh, but he's still in the corridor, I don't know. I guess the raptor in the kitchen really ran roughshod all over the visitor center. Remember, the Tyrannosaurus statue is toppled and its innards are ripped out, and the banner was torn from the ceiling. Which It's a 10-foot ceiling. So that raptor really did a number on this place. Velociraptors, the leg strength of the raptors are specifically addressed, indicating that they were able to leap uh, 10 feet and even more than 10 feet straight up onto the second floor of the visitor center. When leaping, they land, quote, silently, perfectly balanced on the railing on page 349, which you can imagine a chickadee or something perching on a, a railing quite easily. This would be quite a bit bigger, but, uh, but similar, though none of that imagery is being presented by Crichton. Recall the raptors are apparently, as indicated in the previous chapter, hearing the raptor that's trapped in the freezer calling for help and are entering the visitor center searching for her. That's what is suggested by Grant and Gennaro's observation on page 340. Uh, three of the raptors walk in single file through the corridor towards Lex and Tim, and before attacking in a pack, they rhythmically begin to duck their heads on page 350. We have some localities. The the lodge and Malcolm's room is mentioned. The raptors, have, oh, the raptors have almost bitten through the second metal bar in the ceiling on page 349. Uh, the second floor of the visitor center. Apparently there is a balcony on the second floor and the doors are open and the raptors enter the center via a corridor which separates the control room from the balcony on page 349. The second floor is said to be 10 feet up, which is kind of low, especially considering that there was a, a life-size tyrannosaur mounted in the foyer. Um, perhaps there's an open concept front entrance, sort of like we see in the movie. As Tim and Lex leave the control room door to the slumped shape of the dead security guard to get his security card, the raptors come between the kids and the door on page 349. So, if we were to imagine this corridor, it has to be from left to right, security guard, control room, balcony. And as the raptors walk up the corridor, they've now come between the security guard and the control room door. So that's quite the gauntlet. We have illusions and references. This one is neat. So we have error 404. Okay, we don't get a f an error 404 in this chapter, but Crichton does give us an error 505. Is this a reference to error 404? According to Barbara Eldridge in the article History of the 404, published on realart.com, this error 404, file not found, was, quote, defined by web inventor Tim Berners-Lee in 1992 based on the ones used for file transfer protocol in which codes beginning with the 4 are essentially errors. The first 4 of the HTTP 404 actually indicates a client error, like a misspelled URL or a moved page. The O points to a general syntax error, like a spelling mistake, and the last 4 indicates the specific error in the family of 404 errors, which includes the 400, which is a bad request, and error 403, which is forbidden. Ben Wiseman corroborates that report with his own article, Page Not Found, A Brief History of the 404 Error, published at Wired.com. Wiseman reports that Berners-Lee, pioneer Robert Caillou, said that when programming with only 64k of memory back in the early internet days, quote, when you write code for a new system, you don't waste too much time writing long messages for the situations in which you detect an error. Quote, the solution was straightforward, designate numerical ranges for error categories. This was done in Caillou's telling, quote, according to the whims of the programmer. Client errors fell into the 400 range, making 404 a relatively arbitrary assignment for file not found. 
Caillou was adamant 404 was never linked to any room number or, or any physical place at C-E-R-N. He wrote, uh, any idea that this that 404 relates to like some room number is a complete myth, he says. Both of those reports linked the 404 file not found error code to the 90s, and in one case, 1992. This book came out before that. Now, C-E-R-N is a French acronym for the European Council for Nuclear Research, which is an organization that came together in 1952, and reportedly British scientist Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet in 1989 while working with them. The web was originally conceived and developed to meet the demand for automated information sharing between scientists and universities and institutes around the world, and not for mommy buy and sell groups. The internet wasn't invented when Crichton wrote this book. Though he might be aware that it was in development, the error code may have existed, but I can't imagine that regular member of the public, Michael Crichton, was searching for files on the internet and retrieving this error before. But man, for the apparent designation of a new code that became so familiar, 404, to be coincidentally mimicked with the error 505 in this novel is a real coincidence. It would appear that this is exactly what it must be, in frank, you know, just a coincidence. And Crichton would almost certainly have used error 404 if he knew that that was there. So why wouldn't he? It's not like 404 is, like, copyrighted. So this is a fantastic coincidence. Can we really call this an illusion? I don't know. It's still a really neat coincidence. And a fun chance to, to look into the, the history of the error 404. Stylistic techniques. Uh, we have some italics. Uh, not now, Lex, on page 348, insists Tim responding to Lex. He doesn't have time to do anything but get this power back on. The lives of everyone he knows on this island depends on it. Italics reinforcing the immediacy of their problem, heightening the tension. Yes, now, page 348, re-emphasizes Lex. Their own lives are in danger, she's implying. The urgency just went up another notch. It had jumped from the ground below, indicates Tim's disbelief that an animal could jump 10 feet straight up onto a balcony. That's an incredible feat. And that said, if a balcony were 10 feet up in the air, an Olympic pole vaulter could flop onto it with ease, which is pretty incredible. Colon. He pressed Setgrid's DNL and groaned when he saw it. Colon. On page 347. And this presents a fairly specific and data-intensive graphic portraying a variety of buttons and labels that would have been difficult to digest while in a rush. The colon here presents a graphic, and colons are good for that. Quote, he pressed the button on the radio. Colon. Tim, are you there? Tim. On page 349. Here the colon presents what Malcolm says into the radio, and there's something systematic or practical about the colon, as if Malcolm were entering data into the radio. So I like this colon too. M dashes. Quote, but this system did not M dash, or at least he didn't know it on page 345, where here the M-dash is like a less formal comma, and quote, I thought you said they couldn't M-dash. On page 349, whispers Lex, the M-dash serves as an interruption, indicating that even whispering is a bad idea, possibly betraying their whereabouts. We have exclamations, of course you can imagine that they are all said by Lex. Quote, do something, Timmy, on 345, yells Lex into Tim's ear. This is what Hammond was doing to Arnold earlier on page 219, remember. Arnold said Hammond was, quote, like every other management guy Arnold had ever seen, who thinks that screaming is the way to make things happen. But computers don't care if they're screamed at. In any case, here's Lex, the granddaughter of Hammond, a direct descendant, also screaming at someone trying to make a computer work, and the computer doesn't care that it's being yelled at. Arnold was a pro and kept his cool. Timmy just tells Lex to shut up. But anyhow, we're going to find a way to make a, more connections between Hammond and Lex later on. Not in this episode, but uh, in the future. I think there's some really strange and coincidental... Not coincidental, in, intentional. I think there's some really intentional connections between Hammond and Lex that mean something. Quote, he knew the grid coordinates for the lodge, on uh, exclamation mark, on page 348. Is Crichton reinforcing that these details are important on the screen? He has to set that up. 
that, and he has to set up that Tim will know what to do and where to go. So he has to discover some of these details while he's banging around at the computer. I don't know that Tim realizes that he has the lodge coordinates now, but, but we do, which makes us an unusual exclamation. How do you exclaim something that isn't being realized by the person that's exclaiming it? It's strange, right? But Crichton is making sure that we know that Tim has learned this so he can use that later. Quote, you idiot, you locked us out. On page 349, exclaims Lex, again, who's terrified and shocked and surprised and horrified that they can't escape the raptors now that the locks are on. It raises the tension and fear. Note, this is the second automatic door that suddenly locks and keeps the kids trapped against dinosaurs. The first was that weird door behind the waterfall that pressed them up against the Tyrannosaur. So here we go, another trope of these doors locking them out. We've got diagrams in this chapter. Crichton shows what the computer screens show, and this is good. We can see how confusing and challenging it is for Tim to look at them uh, without being described by Crichton as, you know, how confusing and challenging they are. So this is good. And while I don't love seeing computer screen diagrams and things like that in the novel, it's purposeful and it's effective on 345. Capitalization, he pushed template main, which is in capitals and page 345. And this is in capitals and in a different font as well, showing that this is an element of the computer, not dialogue or narration. It's handy, and Crichton has not done this. Um, and had Crichton not done this, it could easily become very confusing. Interface and everything in the diagram are capitalized as well. And there's lots more. There's info, go back on page 346, electric main, set grids, DNL, safety health, critical locks, etc., etc. Uh, all kinds of stuff that are put in this, this different font and in capitals. So we know that this is computer speak and not anything else. Then we have phonetic spelling. Lex winds Tim E with two E's on page 346. And we get some, you know, uh, I think for the first time in the novel, this phonetic spelling. I guess Crichton's italics button on his typewriter was getting worn out, so he needed a new way to express Lex's over-embellished dialogue. Tension. Uh, when Tim and Lex discover raptors are sniffing around in the hallway outside the control room on page 348, we leave them for a moment, suspending our storytelling, making us wonder what's going to happen to them. And then the narrative flips to the lodge and to Malcolm, who has the raptors about three minutes away from gnawing through the bars and attacking them. So he radios to the kids and we get, quote, no answer, further encouraging us to question not only what's going to happen to the kids, but also what has happened to the kids on page 349. So this is really, really strong tension building um, and suspense, and it's all being tied together, making this a really memorable moment in the book. Rhetorical questions. But what did that mean? Why was power incompatible on page 348? Is Timmy wondering what he's doing? But there are no answers. Um, they're just problems. He has to solve them before he can bring Jurassic Park back online. And remember, there is no time to spare. Raptors are about to eat the only people he knows left on the island. How had it gotten out of the freezer? On page 349, wonders Tim, and he, this puts us in his headspace as he's confused and worried. The question's answer is more of a riddle, which Jurassic Park is always telling. There are always constantly these questions and wonders being carefully and slowly unfolded as we move through the narrative. And this is a very brief but exemplary demonstration of Crichton using this idea that questions and curiosities keep us engaged with the, the reading uh, continuing along in the story. Ellipses. Timmy. Ellipsis. On page 348 is Lex trying to get Tim's attention but leaving something unsaid. And throughout the, this iteration of the novel, the thing that is almost always being left unsaid is a velociraptor. <laughs> Alright, literary techniques. We have uh, a metaphor. Tim suddenly found himself lost in a tangled series of monitor control screens as he tries to get back to the main screen on page 345. And we can imagine a tangle like a, a knotted ball of yarn. Here the imagery isn't really depicting how the screen looks, but perhaps the frustration of getting lost with a puzzle like untangling a knot. It's evocative and a, uh, of a relatable emotion, which is good for us. So this is a quick little chapter. And before we sign off today, I want to say another thank you to Rizal Lim for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show, chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or else not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novel, that's the infantry, and the worst of those, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes over visiting schickens.blogspot.com, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or you can find me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.